microphone's working, so I'll just talk loud, okay? I'll talk a little loud if it's not, hopefully just red. Is red okay? We're good, we're all right, excellent. I, I wanna kinda just brace you. I, I felt moved to preach out of Philippians chapter three. In fact, if you'd like to turn there, I'd appreciate it. Philippians chapter three, about two weeks ago. And I, I really, how, how typically I do it when I'm studying for a sermon that I'm gonna preach, I know that it's coming up, I usually will root around in a chapter or a series of chapters for as long as I can and sort of saturate myself with that passage. Um, but not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, my brother died suddenly. He was 51 years old. He, I had just come home from work at the Jerome School District and I, uh, I was moving some bricks out in my yard and my son said, you need to go to your brother's house. Something's going on up there. Is it yeah. Hang on, we're gonna do a quick uh, hot swap. <coughs> Thank you, sir. We have green. Green is good. Um, green is good. I and I, I ran up there. He lives only half a block away, so my son could see the ambulances from where he was and the fire truck. And I, I ran up there, and the the EM, EMS guys were in there working on him back in his bedroom. He had got up that morning not feeling very well. Uh, he had laid down to take a nap. His wife and son had gone to the to Walmart. And when they got back, he was blue, non-responsive. They called the, they called 911. Uh, he, he just died suddenly, it was a heart attack. And it was uh, just, it, he was only 51. He was the baby of the family. And so we had to put together a funeral and do those kind of things, bring family in from out of state and all of that. And it, it, it sort of threw me off kilter. So I'll be, I'll be reading what I'm gonna do and I'll be a little bit more married to my nose today but I, I think it taught me multiple things as I, as I was uh, dealing with my brother's death and trying to sort of work my way through it after I came out of the shock of it. One, don't take for granted the, the people that you have in your lives because you don't know how long you have them in your lives. Uh, he was the youngest and I thought we would kind of grow old next door to one another and be yelling at kids to stay out of our lawn together. You know, that wasn't going to happen. God had other plans for that. But, and I had always, him and I were always gonna like maybe exercise together, but we could never kind of work our schedules together. And I sort of took that for granted that I would always have that time and I didn't have that time. And so if there's people that you're thinking about that God wants you to connect with, I would encourage you not to take that for granted if he's calling you to do that. But another couple of things that really kind of brought me to this passage is just give me Jesus. I, the, the longer that I live, the more trials and tribulations that transpire in my life, just give me Jesus. I need Jesus. I don't need religiosity. I don't need churchianity. I don't need, I don't need rules and regulations. I don't, I don't need Old Testament law keeping. I don't even need New Testament law keeping. I need Jesus. I, and I need him badly. I need to look up because my redemption draws nigh. Because sometimes those events take place in your life where a tsunami of difficulty sort of crushes in on you and you need that lifeguard that can walk on water to reach down and pick you up and pull you out. And so this passage in Philippians is an encouragement to me because it reminds me that my lifeguard walks on water and I can look to him in the midst of that. In verse seven of Philippians chapter three, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. 
Ye doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the, the but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained or were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I just pray that you would hide us behind the cross, Lord. Allow us to lift up your Son. Allow us, God, to focus on him and to win Christ and to count all things but loss and but dung. Help us, God, to have a real deal, blood-bought, saving relationship with you that we might be ready for that day that you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen. There's... I think as we as we want Jesus, as we want to grow closer to Jesus, there's a couple of things that are brought out in this passage. Number one is we need to find some dissatisfaction. Now, normally you don't want to tell people, and particularly Christian people, to be dissatisfied because often they're dissatisfied enough, thank you very much. But we're not always dissatisfied at the thing or the person that we should be dissatisfied with. We're often dissatisfied with everybody that's around us, but I'm okay. No, really, we're often not okay. We desperately need transformation and growth to take place in our life. But the danger is we sort of get cruise control going. I, I kind of miss the days you would act, actively drive your car. How many, I'm just curious, how many here have a standard transmission car? Would you raise your hand if you do? I, I, I want your car. I, I so don't like automatic transmissions. Back in the day, man, you had to pay attention to what you're doing when you had a standard transmission. Because if you don't have the RPMs right, you're not shifting gears, so you've got to focus on it. So you can't be drinking coffee or eating sandwiches or doing your makeup. Uh, not that I do makeup, you understand. I want to be clear about that. But you, couldn't, you can't do those things with a standard because you've got to pay attention to what you're doing. And, but now, now the cars are practically drive themselves. In fact, one of the things that I know that Elon Musk is working on and some of the other car manufacturers are working on self-driving cars. My computer crashes way too much for me to trust a self-driving car. But this, the danger is that we're going to get into this, this, this automatic, uh, you know, uh, coast. We're just going to cruise control along and not really pay attention to my walk with God. God wants you to pay attention to your walk with God. He wants you to have a level of self-awareness about where you are spiritually and where you need to be spiritually. The idea is sometimes when a church goes backwards, the, when you talk about a church going backward as a pastor, the people think that, that you're saying the individual people are going backward. That's not it. But what happens is, let's say that we're, you know, we're all standing in a line and, and, and other people go forward and you stay where you are. You are in, in, for all practical purposes, you're backward of where the flow is. You're backward of where you're supposed to be. So the Holy Spirit of God has got a flow that he wants to move in your life 
a direction that he wants you to move and a distance that he wants you to move. And he wants you to move forward. So the Holy Spirit is moving forward. But if you stay where you are, you're moving backward in comparison to him. Does that make sense? So it's not like you're running back to the old sins. It's not like, it's not like that. But you're also not moving forward with the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. You've not developed a sense of dissatisfaction in developing your walk with God. And I think there is a level of that. Now, when I talk about dissatisfaction, we're not talking about materialism dissatisfaction. By the way, there's, a, there's a, uh, an old cartoon. I don't know if they have them anymore, but it was Veggie Tales. And there was a Madame Blueberry. And she, was, she always was addicted to stuff. And she would go down to the stuff mart. And buy more stuff. And she was always dissatisfied when the stuff mark delivery was brought to her house. And she didn't have enough stuff. That's not what we're talking about. We talk about dissatisfaction. We're talking about being dissatisfied with the level of spiritual growth that is not there in our lives. If I'm not growing, God wants me to grow. He expects me to be further next year than I am this year. Further five years from now than I am right now. So I can't rest on what has transpired in the past. I've got to choose intentionally to grow and to go forward. And I think you even have to have a plan to do that. You have, it, it, growth will not happen incidentally or accidentally in your spiritual development. You, you've got to focus on it. It's like if you're going to grow a garden, you won't grow a garden accidentally. Because not in Idaho you won't because weeds will consume it. And, and, and water, the sun will bake it. And you have to intentionally water it, weed it, plant it, protect it. All those things, it, it, it requires your effort in it. Your spiritual life is like that garden, it's planted seeds, and you've got to put in the work in order for it to grow. I'm not trying to get you to some kind of legalism. I'm merely saying that we need, instead of just sort of cruising along with what we've always done, we need to sometimes challenge ourselves that the Holy Spirit is calling us forward. I was one of those guys that I was... I was I know you won't believe this about me, but I was actually more introverted when I was younger. And I, the idea of being up even in front of this many people would have terrified me. I mean, I would have <gasps> a panic attack like you couldn't believe is what it would have caused. But God had to kind of work me into it slowly. I, uh, uh, one of the guys at the church, he goes, hey, would you come in and uh, I'd like you to come into my class and help me with my, my – he taught like 8 through 10-year-old boys. And we had, we had like 100 – kids that came in in our children's church. It was a huge children's church, and it was a good-sized group of 8- to 10-year-old boys. And if you've ever taught 8- to 10-year-old boys, it's like teaching a pinball machine or something. I mean, they're just they're just sort of frenetic, and they're all over the place. And I, I was sitting in there just kind of shell-shocked just watching this guy teach his class. And, uh, the, and then after the class was over, he handed me the book, and he told me that the class was now mine. So it was my class now. And so the next Sunday, I got in there, oh, and it was terrifying. I was thrown into the deep end of the pool. I had to figure out how to swim. And then, then they needed a children's church teacher. Again, they had 100 kids. So I stood up in front of 100 kids. They're, they're jumping up and down like jackrabbits. They're just all over the place running around. And, and I got to tell you, it took me a long time to figure out how to do it. But but God had to break me out of that comfort zone that I was in. And then he called me into, into various other types of ministry, the bus ministry, youth ministry, those kind of things. And he brings you along on a continuum. But I could sense he was calling me in each step of the way to something else. So what I would like to ask you as you think about this, think about not, not necessarily ministry things, but think about the spiritual disciplines. Reading and studying the Word of God. Do you regularly read and study the Word of God? 
The danger I see with a lot of Christians is as soon as church is over, they toss the Bible down and literally do not pick it up again until the next Sunday. That, that shouldn't be with us. We, we live in, in a time we need God's direction more than ever. We need God's correction more than ever. We need God's comfort more than ever, and that comes through his word. So are you reading and studying the word of God in a diligent, disciplined way? How about your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Is it intermittent? Is it non-existent? How are you doing in that area? So we need to look and take an honest assessment of our spiritual health. Every once in a while, you'll go in for that one-year checkup at the doctor, and he pokes and prods and asks all the hard questions, and you've got to endure the poking and prodding and the asking of the hard questions because that's how he tells if there's something that needs to change in your life. And then he has the uncomfortable, he has the uncomfortable discussion with you about saying, Mr. Kissinger, you're, uh, you're obese now. You need to do some more walking, and you need to produce some pushbacks from the table so that you don't, not as many table curls and a little more pushback from the table because you're getting too big and that's not good for you. So he has those uncomfortable conversations. Well, the, the great physician, he comes into our spiritual lives, diagnoses what's going on, and then allows, he writes a prescription, more word of the God, more word of God. More prayer, more time spent in church services around God's people, more time mentoring, more time teaching classes. He has those kind of injunctions for us, and we need to listen to those. So how do we get so self-satisfied? Because we compare ourselves to others who are not doing anything. Inevitably, we go, well, that guy's not doing nothing. Man, I don't got it. I'm doing more than he's doing. Well, congratulations. You're not supposed to compare yourself to him. You're supposed to compare yourself to Jesus. Bible says comparing yourselves with yourselves is unwise. Instead, you compare yourself to Christ and grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Uh, so he says in verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. In other words, I haven't arrived yet. There, there's still more growth that God wants me to take, to, to bring into my life, and we've got to do that as well. We need to have that growth. Um, <laughs> my pastor one pastor, he's preaching, he said, ignorance and apathy are the problem of the church. And he pointed to a guy in the front row and said, do you, do you even know what ignorance and apathy are? He said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> think, think about that and it'll come to you in a little bit. I don't know and I don't care. Ignorance and apathy? Dude, never mind. Um, when, when is the church officially dead? It's officially dead when we've spent so much time looking back at what we did that we're no longer able to look up to Jesus or look ahead to what God is going to do. In other words, the best years of this church, they're not behind you. The best years of this church are ahead of you. Because you can look up to the Lord, the loving Lord who wants to draw you in, into new avenues of ministry and, and new hope and new help to this community where you become rivers of living water to this community. But if you're looking back, you're not looking up and you're not looking ahead. Now, we will deal with looking back in, in some sense a little bit later, but that's something to be aware of. Second thing to find after finding some dissatisfaction is find some devotion, some commitment to devotion. And he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. One thing is a common, repeated theme in the Bible. The rich young ruler, he said, one thing thou lackest, Jesus says to him, because he said, I've kept all the commandments from my youth up, and Jesus says... To the rich and ruler, one thing thou lackest, sell what you have and give to the poor. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. Come on, I'm not going to do that. And he walks away. One thing thou lackest. And then, then in Mary and Martha, when they're very busy, Jesus comes to visit and, 
and uh, Mary, Mary comes in and is worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Martha is busy serving, is encumbered and burdened by the serving. She comes in and kind of chastises Jesus and says, would you get Mary up and come help me? You know, I, I, and he says, one thing is needful in, in the passage. One thing needs to happen, and Mary's choosing the better part. She's worshiping me. And that was important. And then, then David, he said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. This idea of, of drilling down and focusing on the one thing instead of everything. I, I'm convinced that uh, the modern American church is too dissipated and disjointed. We are energies. It's not that we don't have energies, but our energies are spent everywhere else in a thousand different directions rather than in a focused way towards God and towards what God wants. Um, think of, you guys remember the old wagon wheels. I always loved the old westerns and the wagon wheels that are there. It's a hub, and then the spokes go out of the hub to the rim of the wheel, and that's what the, the wagon then rolls on that. A lot of us, are, our, our church is separate from our work, and the two never intertwine. Our work is so separate from our family, the two never intertwine. Uh, work and hobbies, and, and we have these very compartmentalized kind of lives, but, but God and, and church and that are only one spoke in that wheel. That's not what God wants. God wants your relationship with Jesus to be the hub of the wheel out of which everything else flows and grows. So, so that your, your work world should be impacted by your faith in Christ. Your, how, how I raise and deal with my children should be impacted by my relationship with Christ. How I am as a husband should be impacted by my relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not disjointed ideals. They flow out of the same hub of my relationship with Jesus where he's central to my life. And that is a, such an important concept to remember so that we don't fall prey to Satan as he tries to get us with, I mean, now, now we've got an emphasis for every day of the week. You know, it's like McDonald's Monday, Taco Tuesday, you know, whatever Wednesday, something Thursday. By the time you get around to Sunday, it's like sleep all day Sunday, you know, because we're exhausted because we've spent, spent all of our energy and focus in a thousand different directions. There's a poem that I like. It says, it's called, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When I was a child, I laughed and I wept, and time crept. When I was a youth, I dreamed and I talked, and time walked. When I was older still, I daily grew, time flew. Soon I will be traveling on, time gone. We, we have a limited amount of time. We have to be careful how, what we do and why we do what we do. What one author was saying, he said, it, how do you know you're a writer? He was an author. He said, because you write every day. And he, and he said, he said, I write every day. I write Christmas. I write, I write on Thanksgiving. I write every day. Because he said, I'm a writer. But there are a lot of people who might say that they're a writer, but they never write anything. They, they, they would like to write something. They dream about writing something, but they don't write. So you have one person who is essentially an amateur who in spurts and, and short little fits does something called writing. And then you've got another individual that writes every day of their life. They're a writer. Do, do you understand what I mean by that? And, and um, you, you've got to get dedicated to it. I mean, it's not just a matter of being a, a, an amateur at it. Like, do you guys remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Chariots of Fire was an excellent movie. If you've never had a chance to see it, go get it somewhere. You'll probably have to 
go to the archives or something because it was back in the 80s. But it was about a man named Eric Little who was a missionary to China, but he was also the fastest runner in Scotland. And he was asked to join the Olympics and, and to run in the Olympics. And he was talked into it because it would be a chance to witness for his faith. And so he engages in these races. It's also a story of another man. I think his last name is Abram or Abrams. I can't remember. But he, he wants to run and wants to win this race, but he's not as fast and he's worried about it. So he does something that's actually illegal in the Olympics at that time. He hires a professional coach and the professional coach puts these, puts eight coins down on the table in front of him. And he said, you need, you need 10 coins to win the Olympics. You have to have 10. You have eight right now. Your natural ability, just doing what you normally do without any discipline or, 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 uh, you know, or putting yourself into it. He said, but if you'll do what I'm telling you, I can get you those two more coins. And then it shows him training. You're doing all the stuff that, that he does. I, I wonder if sometimes we're not just coasting and we're giving God what, we all, what we've always given God and we're doing what we've always done and we're not looking for those other things to add in, those other gifts, talents, and abilities that God might want to bring online to cause us to go to even a different level. So it's something certainly to think about, but it's what we do full time. So uh, kind of Sunday morning Christianity is not going to cut it. Reading the Bible in spurts and fits. and like, like if you had a, let's say that your house is on fire. One of my friends back in Missouri, their house didn't catch on fire, but a business right next to them across the fence caught on fire. My buddy's out back with his hose. I mean, he's got his hose. He's he going to do what he can to wet everything down in his yard and on his house. Wouldn't it have been disappointing if when the firemen got there and they cranked the, the what's that called? The fire plug. They opened up the fire plug and it just sort of spit a little bit of water out. That's not good. You want a good flow out of that fire hose because its job is to put out that fire that's there. You want force coming out of it. If my friend would have turned on his hose and it would have just sort of dribbled out, that wouldn't have been good. God doesn't want little dribbling activity in our spiritual life. He wants the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives, moving us towards a growth and, and maturity in our walk with God. And sometimes God uses, God uses some tough stuff to break us out of that comfort zone that we get into. Dwight L. Moody, uh, the Billy Graham of his day, if you don't know who Dwight L. Moody is, think of Billy Graham, but moving back in time, about 100 years, uh, without TV, without radio, he won over a million people to Jesus Christ in his ministry, in his evangelistic ministry. He was never ordained into the ministry. They always, if you read about him, they always call him Mr. Moody. He was, uh, he was never ordained to the pastorate or, or to, to ministry, but he was one of the most effective evangelists that ever lived. He, he uh, would teach and preach some at a YMCA back when it was a Christian, when it really was Young Men's Christian Association, and he was doing sort of ministry work that was there. And one Sunday night, he, he was giving an evangelistic sermon. And he said, I want you to go home this week. And I want you to think about where you are with God. And if you want to get saved next week, when you come back, we'll help you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. So they went home. That week, the Chicago fire happened. This is in Chicago. And he's in Chicago. Chicago fire happened. I mean, thousands of people died. Many of them that were in that particular meeting died. And he determined that he would never have a service without an invitation again. But it was also what propelled him into full-time evangelistic work. And he shook two continents when he got pushed out of that comfort zone. 
So I don't know what it takes to do that for us, but I know that sometimes that is something that happens. We need to find dissatisfaction. We need to find devotion. We also need to find direction. Forgetting those things which are behind, we press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling. Every January, every January, God gives us a new year. The, the Romans, they had a weird deal. The name January comes from the god Janus. Caesar named the month. And it was a god that was, had two faces on his head. One was looking back and one was looking forward. That's not necessarily something you want in your walk with God. You don't want to be always looking back. Um, we need to be careful that we don't sort of rest on our laurels by looking back at what transpired in the past. Now, when, when Paul says, one th this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, he's not saying that we never look back. Because I I Isaiah would say, remember the former things of old. And so Isaiah is saying to remember, Paul's saying forget which one is right. They're both right, but it's the purpose that you're, that you're looking. So if I'm looking back to gain a life lesson that I can apply into my future, that look is good. If I'm looking back to live in the past, that's bad. Does that make sense? So if I'm looking back to go, man, I, boy, man, we had good times. We had a walk with God. We had the glory of God on us back then, man. That was awesome. And then, but you're living in that. You're not moving forward. That's not good. So Paul, Paul had a lot of stuff he could have looked back on. In fact, the first part of the chapter, he talks about the spiritual advantages that he had, what tribe he was born in, an Israelite, concerning the law of Pharisee, was all these things. He said, but I don't count those things as anything but dumb. They're nothing to me because of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said, That's, Jesus is what matters to me, not any of that other stuff. So we need to be careful that when we look back, we're only looking back for life lessons, not to live in the past. And that can be true, not even if it was just the good old days. There, there's a lot of people that, that are mired in some mistake that they made in the past, and they're not able to get beyond that because they're living in the mistake. Instead of confessing it to God, receiving forgiveness and grace and moving forward, that they're assuming that this defines them. That that past mistake doesn't define you. God defines you. And God can wash you and make you clean and, and propel you forward in, into things that you can't even possibly imagine. Amen. So we need to not look back at past sin because that will mire us in it. So Satan wants to come and remind you, oh, you know what you are. You know, you know, how, you, you know what you did. Nobody will ever accept you because of what you are. And he wants to define you by your sin. God doesn't define you by your sin. God defines you by your relationship to his son, Jesus Christ. And when you have that saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you're a new creature with new features. Your past has been washed away. John R. Rice used to say, no matter what you did in your past, your future is spotless. And it is. It, it's spotless. It's bright in front of me. And so I don't have to live in the mire of the past. I can move forward by confessing and forsaking those sins. I can move in, in forward in power. Also, don't look back at past failures. A just man falls seven times but rises again. Gets up one more time than he falls. Now, look, if you're going to learn anything new, you're going to fail at it. You're, you're going to get really bad at it. I remember the first time I learned to ski, I went up to Pomerel. Have you guys ever been to Pomerel and ski there? It's fun. I, I like Pomerel. 
I, I didn't the first time I went down. I went down milk. You were, you were shaking your head. I went down milk run because ostensibly it's the easiest run that's there. But if you're a very beginning skier and one of your knot-headed friends talks you into not taking the lessons but just going up to the top of the hill, milk run takes about 50 minutes to get down because you fall down and your skis go blown off like a yard sale somewhere. And it's you got to crawl around in the snow and get it. And then, then I got back. I got my stuff and I went back up and I did it again and I did it again and I did it again and eventually by the, by the end of the first or second time I went skiing I wanted to buy Pomerel. That's a lot of fun man but you got to fall down first before you, before you learn stuff. When you're trying something new you will fail at it but learn to fail forward. Learn to learn from whatever your mistakes are so that you can move forward. Babe Ruth for a long, long, long time was the home run king in the baseball. You know what else he was the king of? Strikeout. He struck out, I think he struck out like, like three times for every home run he hit or something. I mean, he, he was the leading guy at striking out, but he was also the home run king. If, if, if you don't try, it's true you won't fail, but you also never succeed. And so he understood he had to try. Winston Churchill said success is the ability to move from one failure to the next failure. And a lot of truth to that. Abraham Lincoln, listen to his, listen to his uh, business career and political career. 1831, Abraham Lincoln failed in business, went bankrupt. 1833, back on his feet again, failed again. 1835, his fiance died. 1836, nervous breakdown. 1838, ran for Speaker of the House, was defeated. 1840, elector, he ran to be an elector, he was defeated. In 1843, he ran for Congress, was defeated. Again for Congress in 1840, it was defeated. Senate, and was defeated. Vice President, and was defeated in 56. and 58, Senate was defeated. In 1860, was elected president, and was probably one of the greatest presidents that we ever had. But he failed, and failed, and failed, and failed, until he succeeded. And a lot of times, if we're going to learn anything in our walk with God, we're going to make it. Sometimes we've got to fail and fail and fail until we finally make it. And also don't look back in bitterness. It's very easy. It's very easy to get locked on to what some person, a wicked choice some person did to you in the past. And it's easy to allow that event to define your life. Let me encourage you, don't give them that kind of power. If somebody did something wicked to you in your life, don't give yourself a life sentence of being bitter against them about that life event. Instead, give them over to God. God is the one that can exact justice from the situation. Give it to God and, and let God take care of it. You move forward with your life because really the best revenge is a life well lived. The best revenge is to move on and not stay mired in that mess that's there and not stay bitter. Joseph is probably one of the best Older Testament examples of a guy that did not let bitterness eat him up because bitterness is a, is a substance that destroys the container that carries it. So let's say that I'm bitter about somebody now. Let's say I'm bitter in my heart. It'll destroy me, not the other person. Because, I, because that bitterness with you all the time, and it affects every relationship that you have. Hebrews talks about don't let a root of bitterness spring up and defile many. What that means is, is if I'm bitter, if I've got a heart full of bitterness, that affects not just the one relationship that I'm bitter about. It affects the relationships I'm not bitter about. It, it affects all of them because it becomes like a poison that poisons everything. And so Joseph, his brothers, 
his brothers were jealous of him from the get-go, from the time he was a little guy. His dad didn't help by making him a snazzy coat of many colors that the brothers didn't get. And so they, they feeds into their jealousy. So dad favors Joseph. The brothers sense dad's favoring of Joseph. They hate Joseph. Then, then dad makes it even worse by sending Joseph to find out what his brothers are doing. He's got to take the message back to dad. So the, dad is intentionally really making Joseph a tattletale well that's not going to make brothers any feel any better about him finally they they decide they're going to do something about the Joseph problem they grab him they beat him they tear up his coat they they were going to kill him but one of the brothers says that's not right they throw him in a pit and then they sell him to slave traders he goes into Egypt He's a slave there for a man named Potiphar, rises to the top in that position so that the Bible says that Potiphar doesn't have to think about anything except what he's going to eat when he gets home because Joseph takes care of everything for him. The wife of Potiphar falsely accuses Joseph of rape. Joseph ends up going to prison for multiple years over a false accusation. At some point there, he interprets the dreams of two people, a butler and a baker that had worked for Pharaoh. And, and uh, one of them, Joseph says, I'm sorry, but you're, you're not going to make it. The other one, he says, in three days, you're going to be vindicated and you're going to be out of here. When you do get out, remember me to Pharaoh. He doesn't remember him to Pharaoh for a long time. And then Pharaoh has a dream and the I, I think I know somebody. I think I know a guy. And, and Joseph then becomes... The, the second most powerful man in Egypt in, in that time as a result of correctly interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And then his brothers come because there's a famine in the land. And they, they need to buy some grain from Joseph, and they don't recognize Joseph. Now, this is a perfect time for Joseph. Man, I'm going to fix you guys. I'll show you. That's not what he does. He sells them food. And then ultimately, he works it out where he moves them down into a, a place where there's provision and there's safety and they're under his protection. And then even after years, even after Jacob dies, the brothers come and they go, they're trying to manipulate the situation. And they go, hey, uh, Joseph, uh, now dad said when he dies, you're still supposed to be nice to us. And because they think Joseph thinks like they do. And Joseph, in, in Genesis 50, 20, he says, he says, you meant it for evil. What you did, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save much life. Now, Joseph went through some horrible things, but he ended up issuing forth, because he didn't let bitterness poison him, he ended up being a conduit for resource for thousands and thousands of people to have food during a famine. But had he let the bitterness eat him up, and the first time he saw the brothers, you know, th that whole thing, it could have ended very differently. So we need to be sure not to look back in bitterness. And also not, not resting on your laurels. Look. Well, it used to be, you know, things used to be different in the past. We used to have maybe more time. We used to have maybe more talent. We used to have whatever. But we've got to be careful not to live in the past, but instead to focus on what's going on right now in our life. And what does God want me to do right now? And focus on that instead of resting in the good days that have gone by. So no good thing comes from dwelling on. And then I would say this too, and I'll just toss this in here. Um, there's sometimes that God removes some people from your life because he had them there just for a reason. They were there for a reason, for some specific purpose in your life, and they weren't going to be there in your life forever. They were there for a reason. 
and that reason was accomplished and then they move on. There are other people that are in your life that are back in your past that they were there in your life for a season. So God would bring together a grouping of people for a season of time to accomplish a specific purpose, but sometimes God then moves them into various other ministry kind of capacities and places, and they're no longer able to be together anymore. So if we're not careful, we can lock on to a relationship that will stop us from going forward in our walk with God because we won't let something go. We won't let someone go. Now, now, I'm not trying to get you to abandon all your friends, but I'm specifically I'm thinking of young people. Young people, a lot of you have got some friends that are trying to influence your life in a very negative way. And God's telling you that you need to leave them behind so that you can go forward in your walk with God because they're trying to drag you down. That they're trying to shipwreck your faith and take you a wrong direction. And what you have to do is let go of that relationship and trust that God will bring you new and better friends down the road that are not trying to sabotage your faith. Does that make sense? So, but if you spend all your time looking back at that, that friendship that maybe is taking you a wrong direction, I think you're making a big mistake. And then, then find some determination and press toward the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Um, you got to be in it to win it. In your walk with God, be in it to win it. What, whatever that looks like for you. And it's going to be different for you than it is for me. It's different. What, what God's plan is for my life is different for me, for you, for anybody else. He has a different plan. And so I'm not telling you you got to follow my plan. you got to follow whatever plan God has for your life. But whatever it is, follow that plan. Be in it to win it. Press toward the mark. <laughs> God, I was listening to one comedian. He was saying, he was saying the Olympics are amazing. He said, they're just amazing. These people are the fastest people on the planet. But he said, because you're running the fastest people on the planet next to other fastest people on the planet, it doesn't look so impressive. He said, what you ought to do is you ought to get, do some kind of a lottery out in the stands and let one guy that's out there, a regular dude, come run the race with them. Then you'd know how fast those guys were. So you got me out there. I'm carrying, you know, 30 extra pounds. So I win the lucky lottery in the stands. And now Gene Kissinger is going to run the 100-yard dash with Usain Bolt. You know, you get out there and, you know, Mr. Chubby, he's bouncing. and his, You know, but Usain Bolt, those dudes fly, man. I mean, they're, they're practically flying without wings. And, and if you watch them run... Every ounce of their energy is going forward. If you see Usain Bolt run, you can put a cup of water on that dude's head. He don't bounce. He's just going forward. Every ounce of his strength is going in a forward direction. He's in it to win it. When he gets up to the tape, he doesn't like slow down three steps before he crosses the finish line. No matter how far back the other guys are, he blasts through the finish line. I mean, blasts through it. And he's leaning forward. And he's got his nose out. They, they're in it to win it. They're pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling. But the guy that's not, you know, that's not too impressive. God wants us to press toward the mark. Whatever that looks like for you. Whatever that looks like in your situation. If you stand, we're going to have a, just a time of invitation. And I just encourage you to think about the, these things. Is God... Wanting to do a diagnostic on your life about what needs to take place in your spiritual disciplines, in, in your walk with God, so that you can grow and go forward and accomplish his kingdom purposes in your family, in your ministry, in the work world, wherever it is that he's called you to be, are you accomplishing those purposes? Let's just have a word of prayer and then a time of invitation.
Dear Father God, I thank you that you have met with us here today. I thank you for your word. I pray that you'd help us, Father, to move forward with passion for your calling in our life, whatever that looks like for these each individuals. I, I know your callings are different for each person, and I thank you for that. And I do pray that you'd help us to engage in, in our, our striving to know your son Jesus. Help us, God, to be passionate about that in Jesus' name. With head bowed and eyes closed, if is there's anybody here today that does not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but if you'd like to, if you come down to this altar just in, a, in this quiet time, I'll meet with you and pray with you, or somebody will meet with you and pray with you and help you to establish a saving relationship with Jesus. Is there anybody here that would like to do that? How about this? Would, would you like just to, if, if you want to commit yourself renew, in a renewed way, commit yourself to grow in your walk with God, that you're not gonna you're gonna enter into the flow of what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do, and you'd like to raise your hands. I'm committing myself to grow in God this week. I'm gonna grow in God this week. I'm gonna I'm gonna spend time in His Word. I'm gonna spend time in prayer. Just raise your hand up. Just slip your hand up if you want to make that commitment. I see that hand. Any others? Just just I see that hand. Any others? Just slip your hand up. I'm not embarrassed you. I, I, I promise. I'm not. I don't play games with people. I just want to pray for you. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord God, I thank you for this day, and I do thank you for your son. Lord, he went all the way to Calvary for me. Help me to go all the way for him. In Jesus' name.